Okay, this talk was initially planned as the second of a series of four. It's now the third of a series of five. And in it, I would like to talk a little bit about dukkha and soul-making. Now, this is, uh, I think, um, a really huge, vast... Uh, and complex subject. Um, It's also what we might call an open field, an open subject in that um, what we emphasize, what we conclude, and the paths we weave and uh, clear in this whole area depends a lot on conceptual frameworks and ways of looking ways of looking that we develop and implement and catch uh, and how we use uh, terms such as soul making and imaginal etc in other words how what arises for us in terms of suffering in the context of soul making how soul making uh, addresses and impacts on suffering depends very much on what we mean by soul-making, what we mean by imaginal and eros and all these other words, and our larger conceptual framework. So it's open. We are in the process of creating and discovering our ways in all of this. <clears throat> so in because of that largeness and complexity and, and all of that, um, this talk's only going to look at some areas of this whole domain and some strands within that. Uh, mostly what I want to focus on in this talk, or this talk which will yeah, almost certainly have s- several parts, um, mostly what I want to talk about is how um, imaginal perception, imaginal practice, how sensing with soul... Uh, the different ways, or some of the different ways, it can relieve and ease dukkha, um, bring about some relief or even ending of suffering. And similarly, within the whole soul-making paradigm, uh, uh, similar ways that eros, or working with desire skillfully and with discernment, can, can do something similar in terms of freedom from suffering, relief, ease from dis-ease. Um, but I also a little bit want to uh, perhaps touch on um, actually what do we mean by dukkha? What, what what kinds of dukkha are we talking about when we say dukkha and four noble truths and all this and the causes of dukkha? Like what are our conceptions of dukkha? What possible conceptions of dukkha might we bring to bear? And conceptions of the causes of dukkha and also of freedom from dukkha and relief from dukkha or alleviation of dukkha. So, in other words, the the kind of um, paradigm of the Four Noble Truths and how it relates to uh, a soul-making path. So touching a little bit on that and also in the next talk, hopefully. And a third area that I want to... um, open up a little bit, is just to highlight some of the ways and um, areas where we need 
where this kind of practice, soul-making practices, uh, this kind of work, this kind of exploration, asks uh, us for care. Like, we need to take care with certain elements. And what does that mean? What's involved in that? Which elements? And how? Uh, there are certain, perhaps, things... Um, that we need to be aware of in the whole endeavor, in the whole movement and exploration. There may be certain things uh, that are, or aspects that we may may regard as kind of prerequisites. You know, it's good if this and that are kind of in place, if we already have a facility, a skill, a capacity to do this, to do that, um, that we have that kind of under our belt. Um, and without that kind of care, without those kind of awarenesses, and without those kind of prerequisites, um, it's sometimes possible that practicing with eros, practicing with desire, trying these practices, practicing with the imaginal, um, actually brings dukkha because we don't, we're not taking care. There's not enough. Um, awareness of certain aspects and areas and not enough sensitivity and attention and we don't have certain prerequisites. So that's another <coughs> piece of all this that I would like to dwell on. That's what I want to start with. That So areas where we might need to take care, where and what does that look like, what might that look like, um, aspects, elements that we might need uh, to pay attention to, to be aware of, to bring in, un, into our awareness, and what might be prerequisites for this kind of path, explorations, practices. So I think I've said before, I can't remember which retreat, sometime in the last couple of years, um, that you know one could say, well, this soul-making business and these practices, they're pretty advanced. And you know, may, maybe that's true. It's a word I, I tend to shy away from um, myself, but I can could could we could say that, and I could go along with that. I think it's fair to say uh, in in different using different vocabulary that the soul making path, as we are <coughs> unfolding it, outlining it, uh, opening it up, describing it, exploring it, um, it asks a lot of us. It demands quite a lot, a lot of um, know-how, we might say, a lot of um, skills or arts in uh, relation to a lot of domains of our being and experience. So, for example, with respect to our emotional life and and the life of our heart and the needs of our heart, and uh, with respect to body and en- energy body, what we're calling energy body awareness, with respect to um, being in uh, a dyad or a tunus in relationship with some some kind of other, whether that's a human other, a totally intrapsychic imaginal other, um, uh, an other in nature, uh, whether we ourselves become in some in some way an erotic imaginal other to to another aspect of ourselves, how we are in tune us, whether we lose ourselves, whether we um, can't connect, whether we um, have our body and our sensitivity there, um, all of that, um, that whole uh, domain of, of sets of skills and awarenesses and arts, if you like. Um, it asks of us quite a degree of sensitivity in our mindfulness of what we can actually pay attention to, 
uh, notice, stay, stay uh, focused on, attuned to, uh, really opening up the realms of, of um, subtle discrimination, subtle awareness, etc. Um, it's asking of us uh, the art of engaging and entertaining uh, concepts and, and whole conceptual frameworks without losing our body and and the connection with our body and the fullness of that and the beauty and richness and juiciness of that, nor our heart. So what is it to have um, all those three aspects of our being, body, heart, and uh, intellect and uh, mind in that sense? And it's also asking of us uh, that we have some capacity um, and some also capacity for growth with regards to these qualities that I mentioned, for instance, humility and reverence and the awareness and sense of beauty and sensitivity to beauty. It's asking that we are able, uh, that we have developed or are developing the skills, the arts of handling energies um, in, in, in and through the body, of handling and working skillfully with our eros and the energy of our desire and the movements of our desire, that we can discern between eros and craving such an important distinction in, in this kind of work. Um, it's asking to this whole, this whole path, this whole journey and everything involves, it actually asks of us quite a, um, uh, for quite a set of relational skills, which I'll come back to uh, today. Um, we also need really basic kind of insight meditation skills like just the ability and capacity to drop something uh, even if it's fascinating or beguiling or gripping or intense can you actually put it down let it go let go of this image let go of that eros um, in many cases sometimes that's the skillful move within the larger movement of the path and it asks of us all the all the kind of more uh, <coughs> you know co commonly um, taught and spoken about set of Dharma skills, loving kindness, metta, um, mindfulness, um, some degree of skill uh, with samadhi, knowing what works for you there, um, some understanding and a little bit of skill of, uh, with emptiness, etc. So it's quite a lot, you know. Maybe that warrants the word, uh, the, the, the epithet advanced, I don't know. The adjective advanced. Um, it's also probably, I think, fair to say that this path, these practices, these kind of investigations and explorations playing in this way can, often does, not all the time, but at least at times for everyone, it will, it will bring up a lot, so to speak, if we, if we use that phrase. Um, or we could say it, it pushes on a lot in our being, in our <coughs> psychological and psychic makeup. It opens and stretches a lot. Again, whether that's in terms of our heart, our emotions and our emotionality, whether it's in terms of energies <coughs> that we experience from time to time, whether it's in terms of our views and the views we have of, of um, self, of others, of world, of existence, of desire, of all kinds of things. Um, 
also psychologically, you know, our, our, it pushes on quite a lot, or it can push on, bring up quite a lot at times. Um, uh, certain things that have gotten stuck in us or fixated. Um, it can, you know, uh, also we're uh, including the possibility that Eros does become sexual at times and involves, and you know, remember, Eros doesn't only means sexual um, attraction and energy, but it includes that. And so it, it may bring up things around our relationship with desire, around our whole sexuality, and uh, how that is for us. <clears throat> for some, sometimes for some people, all, all this um, arises. Now, many of you are already uh, practicing in this way, or introduced in this way, playing in this way, have, have already seen, felt, experienced for yourselves just the, what, what kind of um, openings are possible here. Um, and many of you are, uh, you know, I, I know, really, really touched and um, almost amazed and uh, taken uh, with, with this way of practicing and, and, and what, what it can draw into its orbit and include and, and redeem and transform and open up. Um, and um, you will also realize, um, if that's the case, or many of you, I hope, will realize that um, for all that beauty and opening and grace uh, and gift to be, um, to be possible in a, in a uh, in a way that's long-term sustainable, um, that we need to kind of inquire to what, what are the elements of this path. Like, uh, you know, when, when the Buddha talks about the Eightfold Path, it's like, what makes this sustainable? He doesn't just say, just go and be intensely mindful, um, or just, you know, zip through the jhanas or whatever. Um, just contemplate emptiness <clears throat> and just let go. Um, what actually makes this kind of path sustainable? What are the elements, what are the, if you like, the essential pieces of equipment that we need to take on this journey, if you like? And so I really, as I said uh, before, I want to kind of um, walk a tightrope somewhat in, in, in some of these talks and, and really want to be encouraging. Um, and I don't want to be forbidding at all. Um, <clears throat> and as I said, many of you have already, you know, it's, uh, have been really surprised by just what is possible, um, even with a little bit of practice in, in these kind of ways. But there's also this question of, uh, uh, yeah, can, can we bring a kind of maturity, psychological maturity, to looking at the whole path and what it might need? Like, what is good practice in the long term? What is good taking care of myself, taking care of the soul, taking care of this path and practices? So, in the context of really wanting to encourage and offer freely these teachings and um, for the long term, um, balancing that with a kind of uh, in encouragement also to reflect, you know, in each one of us. If I want, if you want to open in this way, to explore in these ways and um, move in these ways of soul-making, what do I, what do you um, need to develop? Um, as I said, what are the essential, if you like, elements of the path or pieces of um, kit for the journey. 
And so we can be kind of universal in answers to that, but a lot of it's quite individual as well. What do I need? Where I am right now as a human being with my history, the teachings that I've had, the practices that I've developed, the skills, the things I've worked through, my psychological history, uh, my different capacities and needs, etc. What do I need to develop? Um, me, myself, right now, where I am, if I'm attracted to this path, if I want to open it up and, and um, move forward in a way that's really fertile and fruitful and sustaining and, and beautiful, it doesn't mean it's always going to be easy, even if I have all these pieces and elements. Um, even though I'm taking care in these ways, it will be challenging at times. Um, but just that really that makes it actualizable, realizable, not just kind of sounds good and exciting or just some fireworks that kind of flare up, look amazing, and then very shortly thereafter just disappear without a trace. Um... <clears throat> So, and I'll talk about some of these pieces. Um, I've, I've mentioned uh, quite a few already, but um, if, you know, I find or you find that a foundational piece or, or an area needs some more work, um, you know, it's quite possible to decide to focus on that piece for a while or that area for a while without forgetting or, or giving up on the bigger intention or, or the larger love of soul-making and that whole trajectory, that whole movement. I say, I keep that in sight. I know what I want to develop. I know where I want to go. I know what calls my soul and my heart. And I also see that right now this piece is important. Actually, that's quite interesting too, this piece. And that's part of the whole journey. If I want to get there, then I need to go over here. Maybe this bit is a little bit of a rocky terrain, or it's a little dark here. I'm in a little bit lost in a forest, but I have a kind of map. Or it's kind of uphill for a while, you know. So just that whole attitude of kind of like, okay, I, I, I'm not losing sight of the bigger picture of my soul's desire and that big calling and yearning. But right now, um, I'm going to focus on this one. I'm going to develop this piece. This is good. Um, and there's a kind of maturity in that. There's a psychological maturity in that, in that kind of view. Um, there's also kind of, if you like, a maturing possible there of our fire and our eros for the path. In other words, a, a wise or mature discerning um, longing for to travel the path, uh, a wise burning of our fire for soul making involves at times, you know, actually going slower, actually staying in one place for a while and developing something or other, putting certain foundations in place, making sure we have the right footwear, if you like, or, or whatever it is. So, you know, and this um, translates, uh, or, or you see this in, in many other tr traditions. Um, for instance, in, in Tibetan Buddhism, y you will know that there are lots of preliminaries um, for the bulk of the path, and especially when you get to Tantric Vajrayana practices. And so practitioners are regularly required to do 100,000 prostrations. Yeah, that's hard work physically. 100,000 prostrations before you even start on something that might... Uh, seem a lot more kind of exciting or, or kind of sexy to you, or a hundred thousand <coughs> mantra recitations or whatever. 
Uh, and so this is part of the maturing of the vision. It's part of preparing the soul, um, the humility, the patience. Part of also maturing the fire, tending the fire, you know. Or there's those Zen stories where a... Um, uh, practitioner goes seeking out a certain teacher for their teaching and is kind of made to sit outside the teacher's cave in the snow, through the snow, through the heat for three years or whatever. And if they can stay steady, then the teacher says, okay, let's let's see, let's give you some teaching. Um, uh, or in the Jewish mystical tradition of some of the Jewish of the uh, Kabbalistic traditions within the <coughs> larger Jewish mystical uh, set of traditions, um, some some of them, many of them, I think, stipulate that you can't study the Kabbalah, you can't enter into those kind of mystical practices and and teachings until you're at least forty years old. Um, and now the kind of people who show up for that will have been saturated. Um, already with the sort of basic Jewish teachings and traditions and practices. So you've got really quite, and, and study of you know laws and rites and rituals and all that, you've got all that kind of prerequisite understanding and education before moving into these kind of more esoteric teachings. So th- there's kind of... Pa- Parallels in what I'm saying. I, I wouldn't want to be so rigid myself, but but it, it's really good to you know consider this maturely. Um, this whole question of possible prerequisites. It's really good to have a kind of long vision with this stuff. To uh, think about patience is a core element of actually any path. You know, um, thoroughness. What is it to be thorough? You know, to really be thorough in because I love something, because I care about something, and for me, caring about this path is also a way of caring about the world, in, indubitably, indisputably, totally woven up. There's a kind of deep care about, uh, manifesting of a deep care for the world in my caring for this path, in my caring for teaching about it. And they go together. So what is it? If I love something, I'm going to be thorough. Not going to cut corners. I'm not going to uh, build on shaky foundations. If I love my, um, uh, I don't know, baby, my children, and I'm building them a, a, you know, a pram or a walker or a bed, I'm going to make sure it's solid. I don't want it to be falling apart because I care, because I love them. So, you know, the integrity of thoroughness is really just coming out of care and love, and the fullness of love, the fullness of desire, and the maturity of desire. So what is it to, 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 to have, um, to incorporate, uh, and I use that word carefully, incorporate, I mean, really to bring it into, into being, into one's body, in fact. Because all of this knowledge and know-how and skills and capacities emotionally, energetically, even conceptually, goes into the body, incorporated. Incorporate good foundations, really to bring an honesty in terms of what's needed, where we are, all of that. Um, A steadiness of dedication and of practice, you know, that goes with patience, obviously. Like just an unshaking commitment, just, yeah, this is what's involved, I'm up for it. 
and uh, and actually one will find out that all the work, even when it's hard work or healing work or whatever, it's it's beautiful. It's soul work, you know. Um, and in all that, there's humility and just this the willingness of the lover, the willingness of of the devotee. Um, and I mentioned one time, and I can't remember in what retreat it was, and perhaps more than once, but, you know, some people do things very linearly. I do the sort of um, more commonly taught Dharma practices, and I take care of myself um, psychologically, and any kind of healing that needs to happen there, etc. And then I can start on the kind of uh, emptiness and then the soul-making, and it's all very linear like that. Um, and great, if that's what works. And for some people, it, it's really good to think about things that way. And other people, it's really not so linear, you know. Um, so many people, some people, will be called to this, for example, this soul-making work and imaginal work and sensing the soul and all of that, um, and actually almost start there. Um, that does make it more difficult because then one has to develop um, all these other skills kind of uh, perhaps uh, in tandem or perhaps stop for a while and develop them or, or whatever. Um, so one might be have have some experience with these soul-making practices and, and the soul-making logos and really kind of fall in love with it and really see how fruitful it can be, as I said. Um, but also at some point realize, mm, there's, there's some pieces here, there's some foundations, there's some incorporation that needs to happen. And that can happen, as I said, in different ways, either way, just stopping for a while in a certain area, slowing down, or, or actually it's possible in tandem. Um, but again, all this implies a, an honesty with oneself, a maturity in a number of respects, and it's also something you can you know, ask, ask a teacher who's skilled in this kind of uh, uh, soul-making teaching, who's, who's versed in that and used to that, you know, do you think I could... What, what do you think I need, or, or, or whatever? And, and you know, uh, it's not to say the teacher's opinion is 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 kind of a, a decree or anything, but it's good to have some some input like that. <clears throat> so, among the um, elements or foundations or or pieces, if you like, that we've emphasized um, already in the past, I've place great emphasis on energy body, awareness and skill with the energy body. Um, and for some people, I would say actually m- maybe many people, in fact most people, developing that, I mean really developing, takes years. Um, so, you know, on the recent retreats we've spent a day or two at the beginning focusing just on that and then really emphasizing. We've asked people to have practiced with that, excuse me, before they can even come to the retreats. But generally, there's it's generally quite a lot to um, develop that un- until one really feels comfortable, and it becomes almost second nature. Um, the energy body awareness and the different ways of working with it um, it can really take years. Um, and I'm that's not to say that one can't have quite a lot of fruitfulness and discovery and. Um, benefit from that kind of quite quickly, but really kind of making it almost like second nature and, and 
normal for one to be grounded in the energy body with that whole awareness, with that whole range that's in, implicit in, in what we mean when we say energy body, you know, from really dense, solid, kind of earthy uh, element uh, experience to very ethereal and um, everything in between. And to develop the ways that, um, you know, the energy body is central and really useful in practices of samadhi and samatha and metta and just generally in as one mode of mindfulness of the body, how useful it is um, in insight practices, uh, gauging whether we're on the right track or not in terms of what's useful in any moment, and also in imaginal practices, all of which I've touched on before. Um, and th- so this can take, you know, it, it takes quite a while, you know, and even if one just did that, it would be so beneficial, so ben- such a huge resource in one's life, in one's practice. And then particularly the energy body with regard to um, caring for and skill with our emotions and our emotional life, our heart life. So to me, uh, this this um, skill and art and awareness with an awareness of um, our emotional life and everything that goes on there, and really um, knowing facility and and flexibility with how to care for that. To me, this this really is indispensable for soul making. It's a it's a absolutely uh, necessary element. And actually, in the way that I would tend to teach the Dharma, like everything in the Dharma, whether it's metta or or whatever, I would also really um, emphasize that kind of, a lot of development of the art of um, emotional awareness and emotional care. Um, and I, I think it's so important for every aspect of the Dharma, every aspect. Um, so in, in terms of the way I conceive of like, the whole broad teaching of Dharma, I I, I put that very, very, very central. I realize that not not everyone does, not all teachers do. But for me, it's a it's a really key element in in how I teach. And just again, tied in with the energy body, just then what it can then open up, having that confidence um, regarding one's emotions and uh, especially how they are in the body, having um, the understanding, having the facility and flexibility with working with them and caring with them and all that, really, really important. So I've talked a lot about working with the emotions and and with mind states um, in the past a lot. I can't remember the titles of the talks. If I try and remember now, this talk's called like Emotional Healing and Emotions and Freedom or um, Mindfulness of Mind States. there's a three-set talk, if I remember, called Psychodynamics in Meditation. There was a whole retreat I did once, um, if I remember, just just focusing on working with emotions. That was the main practice for the whole retreat. Um, was that called the Boundless Heart? I think. And every morning we gave um, I gave different uh, a different kind of very specific instruction with regard to emotional awareness. It's quite sort of disciplined and circumscribed, each kind of practice there. And I think they were called working with the emotional body, sort of, and there are seven of them, day one to seven. So there's all that um, available if you you want to check it out and really develop this, and I I really recommend that. Of course, it doesn't 
um, have to be those talks, and it certainly doesn't have to be me. But what, uh, whose teachings you listen to on this subject? But I would really recommend, and again, it's part of the way I teach, that you you develop, you know, over time, you're really comfortable with, you really have facility and flexibility with a whole range of approaches to um, working well with the heart life and the emotional life. There's another one called heart work, I remember, in the context of uh, a meta retreat. So, emotions other than meta, during meta. Um, But so that we have the skills, the arts, and the confidence, how rare it is for human beings to actually feel really confident that whatever emotions come up, generally speaking, uh, I'm, I'm, I'm confident that I can work with it. Um, on my own, it's not that I'm close to working with it in relationship and having other people input, etc., sharing that with others or in group process or whatever it is. But um, I'm also confident that I myself can pretty much handle anything that comes up emotionally. That might not that might mean that I have to grapple with it or, or play with it a little bit until I find just what approach um, kind of proves fruitful or helpful. It might be a challenge, but I'm basically confident, and that's really, really possible. And so, part of this, um, what I'm really encouraging um, that that we all develop this set of skills or, or the art uh, and developing that co- confidence is a kind of um, I don't know what to call it, just a sort of habit, maybe that's the best word, a habit, a sort of automatic, um, ingrained habit of awareness of the mind state and and the emotional state. Someone was asking me a a little while ago about this, and I can't remember what exactly they asked, but I I found myself saying to them, gosh, that's interesting, I, I, I hadn't actually been aware of this, but I think because I have paid so much attention to my, uh, let's call it my heart life, my emotional life, and remember emotions don't just happen in, in the heart area, and they actually happen all over the body, And, uh, and but I, just from so much habit and years of psychotherapy and years of sort of work and journaling work in a, in a very bodily way and years of mindfulness meditation and insight meditation where that was central and then incorporating very much into practices that we've developed with the energy body and and um, and other aspects of Dharma practice. Because of all that, I, I think that it's almost like I'm sure it can't be true to say in every moment I'm just automatically aware of what the mind state and the emotional state is, but um, it, it feels true to say that in in most moments it feels like it's just a, a sort of an organic, automatic part of my awareness. Um, but the point I want to make now is, is certainly not nothing about me, but but just that it's possible to actually just that we become much more aware of our emotional state. That it's not, we're not foreigners to like, oh, what am I feeling in my heart? Oh, I have no idea. Now, I remember when that was the case with me, and I just, you know, either I was um, off the scale with an emotion, or I just didn't know what I was feeling. I didn't recognize that I was actually feeling a certain emotion. So, um, it's a lot of work, but it can become, or it can be a lot of work, but it can become really just part and parcel of one sort of normal state of awareness, is that there's a state of, uh, there's an awareness of what the emotions are. 
and 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 actually by emotions I, I can use that interchangeably with the term mind states by which I also mean something much more subtle than what we usually call an emotion just like whether what the t- just really subtle texture of the mind and the heart are right now well they're a little bit cramped a little bit t- cramped just kind of a little bit tired it's kind of um, neutral keel or what, whatever nothing remarkable fair you know just a little bit peaceful just a slightly bit bored, whatever it is, and like really um, gross emotions as well, you know. So there's a development of the awareness, again, over the whole range, so that we both have the um, capacity and willingness and, and awa- capacity and willingness to feel, but also the willingness to be aware of, um, you know, intense emotions, ability to feel intense emotions. The heart is big. And um, and really subtle emotions, the capacity to to notice them, really subtle shades and discriminations, and and tied in with that is is yes this development of the sensitivity to make fine discriminations between really um, maybe we don't even have the words between these subtly different heart states, mind states, and then again part of the whole art is really to care for them and have, as I said, different approaches of caring and a, and a facility and flexibility with all that and understanding my emotions. And that's a big subject. What does that mean, to understand one's emotions? It means quite a lot. Part of, but part, and one thing I'll just say right now, is also understanding, in, included in what I mean by understanding emotions, is also understanding how the very conceptual framework that we're entertaining at any time whether we're conscious of it or not, whether we articulate it clearly or not, actually has an impact on the experience of the emotion and what, how that emotion unfolds. In other words, an emotion is not separate from whatever I'm conceiving or whatever framework I'm, uh, is, a conceptual framework is operating at the time. And that's part of understanding emotions. It's quite a deep or subtle part, but it's, it's actually part of it, and there's lots of other parts too. So all this with the emotions takes um, time for, for most people, not for everyone. Some people, you know, just have that. They're educated in that in their upbringing and parents and school, or, or they're fortunate enough to have that. I don't feel I was. Um, so it it took it, it takes time, you know, uh, and uh, that takes patience. It it can take courage. You know, courage to said to be willing to feel some of what moves through the heart and the emotions, um, because it's intense, um, or because we're scared. What you know, what will happen if I feel this, or what does it mean about me, and all that. And it also takes honesty, um, but it's so so worth it. So so worth it to have to develop that art. Uh, so worth it, and really really possible really possible. Um, now, I, I want to say just a couple of things about, so that's more general stuff that I've probably said before and I just want to re-emphasize it in the context of this talk. I, pro- I want to say a couple of other things um, with regard to emotional awareness and emotional, the art of, of, of being with one's emotions uh, well, you know, caring for them. Um, 
So I talked about having a flexibility of different approaches, of a facility to engage different ways of relating to what's going on emotionally. And this, I think, is just worth lingering on a little bit, if I may. So um, partly I'm saying this because, um, because the Buddha talked about emotions, if you like, we could say it's an element of the third foundation of mindfulness, mindfulness of mind states, the citta, citta, um, mindfulness of the citta. Um, and in different traditions or different teachers um, might emphasize different ways of relating to the emotions and, and the mind states in the context of, um, <clears throat> of of the third foundation of mindfulness. So it's very common that it's taught, of course. Actually, some people don't, but, um, but generally it's quite common. However, you might have been exposed to, or just out of habit, kind of, um, narrowed down the, the the range and the field of possibility of of possible ways that you can skillfully relate to the emotion to the, what's going on emotionally possible. You might have narrowed down just through no fault of your own, uh, or, or just through habit, or just what you've been exposed to. Narrowed down the um, range of approaches and ways of relating skillfully to what's going on emotionally or in the mind state. So some people will have been exposed to a kind of practice that encourages a very kind of intense, narrow, if you like, laser beam of intention um, on um, an emotion as it manifests in the body in terms of vedna in the body or just sensations in the body. And <clears throat> this can be become... That's, that's the way that I pay attention to emotions in my meditation practice, and sometimes for some people, if they do enough meditation in this kind of um, in this way, and that's the sole way of pl- of paying attention, um, of being mindful of the emotions, it, and there's quite a lot of intensity there to their practice. It can become that's the way they pay attention to emotions in their life, and there's this kind of laser beam to the sensations. Now that can be for some emotions, for some people, for some emotions at some times that can be really beneficial. Really, if you like, amplifying the energy of the attention, the intensity of the energy, and focusing it very, na- very, um, yes, inten- intensely and energetically, gathering the energy uh, in the mindfulness, focusing intensely on the sensations in the body, when the throat, or the, around the mouth, or the heart, or, or in the belly, or whatever it is. And that can be really, really helpful with certain emotions, at certain times, um, partly because of the energy involved. Once, once, uh, it, well, I've talked about this before, so I'm not going to go into it now. But um, um, at other times, or for other emotions, um, that that's a, a really unskillful way of paying attention. Um, sometimes, what happens is it just basically obliterates what's going on, so we lose touch with the emotion, and we don't actually get any any degree of nuanced awareness or sensitivity um, in terms of what's actually going on for us emotionally. Um, and sometimes it's actually not helpful for the emotion. It, it kind of burns it in a way that uh, is just adding hurt if it's, if it's a painful emotion, you know, or adding a kind of wounding. Um, or we're missing something. and we, we kind of, through the laser beam focus, we miss something of the bigger, more delicate picture. 
So a second possibility is a much more delicate awareness. Um, so we're still focusing, for instance, on the sensations um, in the body of the emotion, but it's as if we have, again, a kind of dial for the intensity of our, of our uh, attention. And it might be uh, that we can, you know, put it all the way on 10 uh, laser beam or put it all the way down to 1. It's just very, very light. And some of you have heard me use the analogy. Just, it's just like a feather touching, uh, touching the lightest piece of cloth. Uh, just with the lightest touch, the attention is just, just, just touching, very, very light, very delicate, uh, the, the awareness. So something like sadness can be quite a fragile feeling, quite a, um, not only that we feel fragile when we're sad, but the actual feeling itself is fragile. And so I need to approach it with a very delicate attention in order to learn about it, in order to care for it. And so it's as, it's as if we can develop eventually with practice. Part of the art is developing this, uh, if you like, fader switch or, or just how, or, you know, uh, dial, how much, how, how delicate or uh, whatever the opposite, intense, if you like, is, um, or heavy-handed, if you like, is the, that's not such a good word, is, is, the, is the attention to, to the sensations of the emotion in the body. And then a third possibility might be um, that we hold, that the attention is, is less of a kind of beam uh, that goes out towards um, the uh, sensations of the emotion, and more a kind of holding, as if metaphorically um, we're, the attention is more like um, the hands gently cupped, and the sensations or the, the emotion is, is just lightly resting, safe and gentle, but not crushed within that, um, the, the holding of the cupped hands, of the metaphorical cupped hands, the holding of the awareness. So the, the awareness itself has some holding in it. Um, sometimes part of that, or a way of doing that, is to, to kind of have... Uh, infuse the awareness, so this might be a fourth possibility, infuse the awareness with kindness. I remember teaching a retreat ages ago and talking about this, and someone coined the term um, kindfulness, which I think is, is, is now used by some people. Um, so uh, it's, it's, it's mindfulness, it's awareness, but you're sort of turning up the dial of the kindness in it. That too can have lots of, not just a dial, but lots of different um, uh, qualities uh, to it, or, or kind of ways that that can manifest. Because we can be kind to the sensations, you can be kind to the emotions, which is a slightly different thing. I'm not reducing the emotions to sensations. And then thirdly, I could be kind to the self who's experiencing this, say, difficult emotion. Um, so that brings me to some other possibilities. So, you know, this is perhaps the fifth. Um, sorry, I'll go back to the fourth one. Um, this kindness, it, it introduces a kind of softness around. Uh, so some of you have heard me use that image of, of just gentle, warm water lapping against a sharp rock. You know, the, the kindness that's infusing the awareness is just, is just 
uh, lapping gently against the difficult, hard emotion. And it's that, um, it's that softness around it, it's that warmth around it, it's the contact of the difficulty with, with the kindness, with the softness around it, that actually promotes healing. Um, so as, uh, as I said before, like so, we could um, delineate um, a set of, or differentiate between possibilities where one's actually just paying attention to the sensations. So instead, it's almost like the, the mode of awareness goes doesn't have any not interested in the story. It's not interested in the in the self, even the poor me and the, and the kind of sense of self that's having these emotions, it's not even so much interested in what exactly emotion is, because sometimes we don't, sometimes we don't even know. There's not a word for it. But even if it is aware of the emotion, it's just paying attention at the level of the sensations. So less to do with what the emotions are, and less to do with what the self is. Uh, less concerned with that. And again. Useful, but if it's the only way we ever pay attention to our emotions, yikes, uh, quite limited and probably not that psychologically healthy in the long term, but a really good option at times. Um, then there's a sort of middle level focus, if you like, where we're not so much getting into the story, not so much getting into the self, but we are caring for this emotion. We're, we're, we really have a sense, with the sensations, what the emotion is. So there's a sense of more richness or fullness to the experience. We're not going for this kind of reductionist attention, which can, as I said, be really helpful at times. We're going for something kind of I don't know, medium range, if you like. So it's really, I really sense this is sadness. I'm not getting into the story of it. I'm not getting so much into the, the self that's constellated with this sadness. I'm just saying it's just, it's just this sadness with the sensations. And then um, another one, perhaps this is the seventh. This list, again, is not exhaustive and not, you know, so clearly delineated, but, but, but I, hope it, it, I hope you can understand what I'm getting at here. Um, a seventh possibility, if it is the seventh, is that we're actually, we actually allow the self and the sense of self, we include the sense of self in, in the emotional awareness. So yes, the sensations, yes, the emotion, and yes, the self. So again, what can often happen with um, mindfulness teachings um, is that we kind of get the sense that the self is not okay, or it shouldn't be in the picture. Story is certainly not okay. Self is not so okay. And we kind of get used to just the sensations or just the emotion. And again, really good practice, really good to have that gear, have that um, facility to be able to look in a way that just kind of just looks kind of underneath the self, so to speak. It's just this emotion with these sensations. And that's what I'm mindful of, and that's what I'm with, and I'm just steady with my attention there. And, uh, but, but often what happens with long-term mindfulness meditators, people who've been kind of schooled in, um, in, the, in the mindfulness tradition, and again, this was something I'm sharing from experience, is something that I got into in my early years in practice, and, and kind of, oh, hold on, I have to recalibrate um, the, the 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 lens possibilities here on my on my uh, awareness on my attention, um, but another possibility is actually letting the self constellate, including the self. In, so the attention includes the sense of self and the care, 
includes the care for this self. So it's not just this emotion or these sensations. I'm caring for me. It's me who's feeling sad. It's me who's feeling grief. It's me who's feeling angry. And that me right now needs care. Yes, I know it's empty. Yes, I know all that. But right now, um, we're uh, addressing that self. We're including that. I'm not kind of um, focusing so closely that I don't see that. Yeah, so that's another possibility. When we open that possibility, the seventh possibility, then we could say, well, that actually splits into a few sub-possibilities, because we could say, well, which self? Self is a fabrication. Um, so again, there's, uh, in other words, self can be fabricated a lot, or a little, or this way, or that way. <clears throat> so if I say I'm going to include myself, which self? And so this opens up all kinds of possibilities. One possibility, and again, um, if you have these kinds of uh, other pieces of practice um, in, under your belt, it can be really, really helpful. Um, one possibility is um, knowing that the self is empty. I know that the self is a construct. Um, but let it be fabricated quite lightly. So that here's this sadness. And here's these sensations, and I'm aware of them, but this, I'm not uh, kind of not seeing the self, I'm not caring for the self, but the self that I'm kind of letting arise is quite light. It's not a really heavy, dense, contracted self. We'll come to that in a minute, um, that possibility. But one possibility is knowing the self to be empty and just letting it be fabricated a little bit, so you have a kind of light sense of self with the sensations and with the emotion. Just a light, lightly fabricated self, so, so to speak. A second possibility, if we go back to this, well, which self, if we're including the self in the emotional awareness? Second possibility is an imaginal self. Um, or a self that's, if you like, imbued with Im imaginal uh, perception. Um, part of that, remember, is the imaginal middle way. So it's not, um, it's to say... An imaginal self is not the same as a, a habitual self-image that is viewed as real and believed in. I'm a loser, I'm a failure, I'm a this kind of person, I'm bad, etc. Um, an imaginal self is not, is not a, a reified self-view or habitual self-image. Uh, but a second possibility here, um, in, in the larger possibility of including the self-awareness, and the self-care in the caring for the emotions is is a kind of imaginal self. So this um, loneliness that I might feel is the loneliness of that wanderer. This um, weariness or courage or nobility is the loneliness of that warrior. Um, uh, and it's minor. In, in the way there's this infinite sort of echoing and mirroring that we talked about, this part of the imaginary, it's mine too, but it's this warrior. So it's this warriors, or this uh, wanderers, or um, or or uh, whatever. Or it's, uh, it's Avalokiteshvara's compassion, or whatever it is, Avalokiteshvara's empathy, what, whatever, it's Jesus' uh, heart. Sacred heart of Jesus, whatever. All kinds of possibilities there. Obviously, infinite possibilities there. But it's not the same as just the, the habitual, problematic, uh, constricted, um, over-solid and, and reified, um, believed-in uh, self-image. 
And a third uh, sub-possibility of this um, this uh, seventh possibility of including the self in the uh, awareness of the emotions and the sensations is actually you know, let the self be reified. It's okay. You know, as I said, if I've said many times actually, <clears throat> yeah, in the big picture of things, we know the self is empty. But at times it's important to, um, uh, and certainly probably for, for a lot of people, for long stretches of their practice, it's important to just inhabit that view of a reified self and relate to that healthily. Relate to that in a way that's fruitful, rather than just say, I can't have self-awareness. I can't have a self-sense. I can't have a self-view. You know, until there's really quite a lot of emptiness, um, that will be very, very common. And... Um, uh, and even to the point of, um, I don't, I don't even know that it's empty. You know, so it's quite a lot of emptiness practice just to to let it rarefy at times. And some, you know, somewhere in, in our awareness, we know that it's empty, but we're not leaning on that knowledge of its emptiness. And that takes quite a lot of practice. So for you know, many years, probably for most people, um, there's going to be you know, well, mostly I deal with a rarefied sense of self. I've heard this thing about emptiness. I've glimpsed a little bit about about it, but not in any way that really makes too much difference yet. Um, and so it's really, given that's the, the, the picture, I need to find ways of relating to the reified self, either with the whole story that goes with it, or stories that goes with it, or just the self without the story. So can you see, there's all kinds of possibilities here. The reason I'm mentioning it is just because it, it kind of, in, in some interviews in the last couple of years, it, I kind of was aware, oh, that's really interesting. People are... Um, especially people who've done a lot of mindfulness practice, have gotten into a habit of kind of um, paying attention to sensations or bare emotions, if you like, so to speak, but without the kind of caring for the self. It's like, oh, there's a whole dimension missing there that's really important. Because again, if you miss some of these things out, it will have consequences. Um... So there's all these possibilities, and again, there's the, the possibility of facility and fluidity and flexibility with all of that. So, just to um, uh, dwell on that last possibility, the, last, the third possibility of the seventh. Um, so sometimes with a rarefied self, and that's okay, and sometimes with the story, you know, our story that I'm believing um, and, uh, and this real self that I'm believing and all the pain of that and the history and still, that's that's the that's the that's the perspective, that's the conceptual framework way of looking. What's the what's the healing, opening, fertilizing, helpful way of looking at that, of relating to that? So there's um, a set of three talks um, that I mentioned: the psychodynamics and meditation. If I remember, uh, uh, a lot of a lot of those talks were were really dealing with that. Um, a rarefied self, you know, and and just all the kinds of kind of um, you know possible, well, not all, but some of the skillful uh, ways of looking and conceptions and approaches regarding the psychology and the emotionality of of that. Um, and as I said before, you know, anything I refer to, this is such a huge area. The emotions is so endlessly rich and fertile, and um, so whatever I mention here, it, it's only it's only part of the bigger picture. Um, sometimes, what happens though when we 
include the story and the reified self, uh, it's always going to be from some the perspective of some psychological framework or other, some school of psychology or another, even if we're not aware of what it is or that we're doing that. Um, as I said, we can't help bring in a conceptual framework, in this case a psychological conceptual framework. And so um, what I want to return to also in this um, <coughs> talk later on um, is also the, the, the need, I think, to, um, on the one hand, not to lock into any particular psychological view. The view of this kind of psychological school looks at it this way and interprets things this way, and this is the truth of what happened. Um, or this one does it this way. Uh, you start to realize there's all kinds of different conceptions and all kinds of different approaches and all kinds of possibilities. And to really be open to that and not too quickly lock into a certain view and then just become entrenched there as this is the truth of me and my history and the story and this is the true um, fact of what, what happened, not realizing it's an interpretation according to a conceptual framework, according to a particular conceptual framework um, and that there are others possible. Having said that, um, it may be, it may well be that at certain times on our journey, individually, each of us, may uh, need to kind of lock into a certain view and kind of really dig in there with a certain psychological view and interpretation uh, and way of working, whether it's this or that way. Um, it might be necessary just for our kind of, uh, our particular larger trajectory, that for a time we, we look that way. Hopefully, at time, then after after a while with that, we can kind of say, I don't need this anymore, and what else is possible? And then it still becomes an option looking that way, but we're not so locked in, entrenched, and effectively imprisoned by something. And what can, what can be quite um, narrow-minded, and, and if I think back to some of my history, quite dogmatic um, sort of entrenchment. So oftentimes what happens is people get... Uh, fixed on a, a psychological system or, or logos and um, uh, and not realize that, uh, you know, depending on the logos, depending on the psychological uh, conceptual framework, different experiences in different directions actually unfold from whatever is going on and whatever history we have. Um, okay, that's enough for now. Um, but the main point there was to, uh, in our <coughs> awareness of and care for uh, the life of the heart, the emotional life, where we want to include at times the possibility of um, including the, the self and self-awareness in various degrees of fabrication and directions of fabrication in our awareness and care. Um, Let's touch on one, just one more piece about about uh, working with the emotions. Um, I mentioned those seven um, instructions working with the emotional body. I think they were called uh, 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 sequence of seven uh, instructions and guided meditations. I think they were. Um, and just to say, if you do, I'm just throwing this in. But if you do, um, if you do. Uh, feel moved to check them out, or, or you find yourself doing that. Um, just to say a little bit about that, it's it's almost that like they're very um, kind of circumscribed in what they're trying to do. 
So again, anything we say about... I think the emotions is a, is a kind of infinitely rich and infinitely expanding area for human inquiry. Human beings, I think, are never going to exhaust the, um, the infinite possibilities of ways of understanding emotions and ways of, under, of relating to emotions. It's just one of the deep mysteries of human existence is our heart life. And so those particular seven exercises on that retreat are very kind of, it's really not to say, okay, that's it, now you know everything you ever need to know about working with emotions. They're just um, really quite um, tightly focused um, sets of practices, partly, partly given exactly for the reason that what often happens in regard to our um, emotional life is we're all a bit at, at sea. Either things are too subtle and we don't even we don't have the awareness needed to kind of notice what's going on, or when something intense is going on, it's so big and we're so thrown about by it um, that it, we don't we can't really get a grip on it in a way that's helpful and fruitful. Um, so those practices are deliberately kind of very narrowly focused, very sort of tightly circumscribed. And one way of looking at that is. Um, they're kind of um, regard them as kind of like exercises. It's a bit like um, practicing scales at the piano. Um, they potentially they can sort of prepare us or develop our facility and capacity to work well with um, strong and live emotions when they arise. So it might be the practices themselves feel a little a little funny. I mean, some people love them. Um, but one way of understanding what they are is they're just like playing scales at the piano. So when you actually go to play the pieces that you love or you're improvising and you're in the heat of the flow of the moment, um, you, you have the facility to work well both with intent and also with subtle um, emotions and experiences in the heart. So that's one way of looking at them, um, if that's helpful. Um, and, uh, but not just that, they, not just as exercises, they can also be regarded as practices in their own right, um, which do a few things, or open up a few directions. One is, um, so in other words, they're not just scales, they're actually practices which open up certain directions. One is, they uh, can potentially open up to us the world of subtle experience, um, subtle energy and subtle emotions. And again, this is often an area that human beings, you know, for lots of good reasons, haven't haven't really developed that subtlety in relation to the emotional life uh, of noticing and, and caring. So that possibility is can be opened up through those practices. It's a, it's an avenue into subtlety, into into making subtlety accessible, etc. Second uh, way, they are uh, practices that can actually open up their own fruits and realms and directions, is that um, you will probably find, if you really spend a little time with those seven exercises, um, that they can, at least some of them, can lead or will lead to some samadhi, and oftentimes really quite deep samadhi, when the practices are sustained. And I, I can't remember if I explain it there, but it might be that one starts with... Um, let's say, a little bit of sadness in the heart um, or somewhere else in the body. And one's paying attention to it in a way of finding the right kind of <coughs> frequency and modulate, modulating the attention in a caring way of finding, oh yeah, that really helps. And um, 
being with it and being with it, and maybe it goes through a few different phases or needs, in, and you respond to them. And then maybe one just keeps focusing on it um, after all that. And the whole thing, just through the, fo- through the caring, appropriate focus, can just gradually kind of get more and more subtle, more and more quiet. It's not that we're denying it. It's not that we're out of touch with it. It's not that we're... Um, telling it to behave itself and don't be so damn silly or anything remotely like that. But just through the sustained attention and, and the kind of appropriate and caring attention there, um, the, whole, the whole being, including the emotion, just gets more and more subtle, more and more quiet, goes into a kind of, um, some kind of samadhi or other. So those practices, one of the possibilities of opening there is, is as a way into samadhi. Thirdly, for now, I just want to mention this again. Um, if you do happen to play with those those seven practices um, uh, on those instructions uh, recordings, um, that it's possible that through playing with them, what what becomes much more evident than is usually the case for for human beings is. Uh, the dependent arising, the dependent origination and dependent uh, cessation of our emotions. So those practices, because they're so circumscribed, we're very clear what I'm trying to do. And when I pay attention this way, when I think that way, when I pay attention, then, then I see the emotion sort of getting more difficult or more easy or softening or um, being blended with care and transforming or healing or whatever. So um, through kind of being quite precise and focused and sustaining what one's trying to do in the meditation <coughs> in these seven um, instructions that I gave on those talks, um, the, the dependent origination of emotions is revealed to us. And dependent origination, as you will know, is a crucially important insight. In regard to emotions, I, I view it as it's not the be-all and end-all of what we need to understand with regard to emotions, but it's so, so important. It's so crucial. Um, it makes such a difference to our lives, our practices, and, and just our whole uh, understanding of ourselves and others um, when we understand that. It's not the whole truth, it's not everything, but it's a really important strand. Okay, so we've, we've, we've mentioned just briefly a lot of factors. We've dwelt a little bit on uh, the energy body uh, tonight and uh, a little longer on the emotions and what might be involved in, in this sort of prerequisite or need for emotional awareness and emotional uh, care, the skill, the art um, of all of that, and the range, <coughs> flexibility, and facilities there. Um, a little bit related to that, or, or, or partly related to that, um, I've noticed something over the past couple of years, and that is that for many, I don't know if it's for most people, but it might be most people. Soul making happens perhaps more readily in relationship with other human beings, especially those also interested in soul making, um, than it might on one's own. Happens more in relationship, or more readily in relationship, from many people, let's just say that. Or, what we could say more, more accurately, we say, 
at least um, um, eros and image are activated and perhaps uh, activated and ignited a lot um, in relationship and particularly in relationship with other people interested in soul making than they might be on one's own um, people are different there's exceptions um, but but I, I would say that so the the question though is whether um, eros is activated just in its sort of small meaning um, an image uh, or whether the eros is, is really allowed to to activate and ignite the whole eros psyche logos dynamic the whole soul making dynamic fertilize enrich complicate widen deepen all that their interplay and interrelationship and that whole soul making dynamic is actually um, uh, ignited and uh, turning in a way that is um, that sustains or um, whether something as I said just flares up quickly and then fades out fizzles out whether something flares up with a lot of intensity either eros or image or something and then it breaks down or something short circuits so to speak or a fuse is blown if you like or, or it just gets snuffed out by having the wrong kind of air or the wrong kind of environment or something heavy landing on it or whatever to use those metaphors so it's often in relationship, and the question is, um, what actually allows um, uh, the eros and image that might arise <coughs> in relationship, just being around, interacting with other soul makers, doing this kind of stuff, what allows that to be soul making, genuinely soul making in a way that can be sustaining? Um, because part of the way um, problems can arise um, uh, or if you like, the, the eros psyche logos dynamic is disrupted or inhibited or squelched or whatever, is exactly in <coughs> relationship with each other or, or around relationship with each other. So it's there uh, sometimes where that's, that's one of the ways uh, that, that uh, we can run into problems. So what that means, again, is that we're going to need... Um, or it's a really good idea to uh, have developed our psychological awareness, our emotional awareness, um, not just in ourselves, but also of others. And that doesn't mean telling other people what's going on for them or all that, but um, being able to, to, to have that in relationship and some degree of having that uh, you know, sensitivity to another, it's maybe a better way of putting it, sensitivity and openness to another's psychological, emotional, energetic process while we have our own and have that awareness, sensitivities, capacities. All of that, plus it might ask of us, and I think it does, I think what this soul-making work does <coughs> ask of us is um, relational skills, as I mentioned earlier. And that includes communication skills. You know, being really being able to communicate well um, with with another, to listen well, to work through difficulties well, to communicate difficulties well, to be precise, to be sensitive, to be caring, to be appreciative—all of that. <clears throat> so, if we just unpack this just a little bit. Um, Uh, soul making, when soul making happens, as we said, eros is a factor. So eros tends to 
um, come up or arise or be ignited when there's soul making going on and we catch that flame from, from another or in a field or whatever it is. And even if we're not working deliberately in an um, erotic, imaginal soul making dyad, even if that's not the case, um, there can be just in the field um, with the eros that's arising, which might be eros for, for something else entirely, um, in, in the way that the soul making dynamic can work, as we've described um, before in, in past retreats, the eros might spread. Um, to 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 um, be directed or in relationship to a fellow soul maker. So I didn't start with it, but now I'm now I have an erotic imaginal uh, connection, if you like, or ignition with this other soul maker. Um, so really good to be aware of this. Is this a possibility? And and then that asks us, okay, um, what tends to happen when there's eros? and someone becomes image for us, is that all our patterns, or some of our patterns, um, around intimate contact with other human beings get um, elicited, triggered, activated, ignited as well. And so for some people, you know, that's a fear of rejection. Just as soon as I have the eros, and this person becomes alive for me as an erotic, imaginal other... Um, that then that kicks in my fear of rejection or my fear of getting hurt or my fear of loss um, or some kind of fear or 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 a projection of rejection um, or an anticipation of fear what, whatever um, so it's not even uh, I just assume that it's already happened or something um, or I find myself or I find the other one um, bringing in, dragging in um, needs that don't really belong in this relationship. Um, they're perhaps, so, so to speak, old needs or needs that belong in a, in a different kind of relationship where a whole different set of rules are established um, and understood. Um, and again, we may be aware of that, we may be not aware of it, uh, whether in ourselves or others, we can be aware or not aware of all of that. Um, then there's just the other person's patterns and, and, and reactions and, and how I react to their reactions and my patterns when someone else... You know, all this, all this possible. Um, so again, to have some, some awareness, some skill, some sensitivity, some discernment, some willingness with all of that, really, really uh, useful. One element within all that which I've talked about before, and I can't remember in what retreat, might have been in the Reenchanting the Cosmos retreat, was um, just the element about what happens for us as human beings, and I again very much think it's um, endemic in modern uh, modern culture, modern, I was going to say western, that's probably globalized, modern westernized culture um, around being seen being seen by another and being seen by another who's important to us, all of that. And so we often have a cure, for many people, there's a curious and painful mixture in, in the being of a kind of need to be seen, an intense and deep need to be seen, a wanting to be seen and a fear to be seen. Uh, to be seen deeply, fully, openly, um, and all that kind of gets 
mixed in a way that's uh, confusing and uncomfortable and causes all manner of sort of shunting back and forth and opening and closing and hiding. And um, So I think, in, in the way that I, I see the soul-making work and see the nature of soul, uh, I, I would say that soul, the soul, your soul, my soul, um, or the divine in me, um, wants to be seen. It wants to be seen. It wants to express itself, to manifest itself in the world and to be recognized for what it manifests. It wants its particular beauties, its particular way. It, again, refracts the divine, to go back to the past talk and what I was sharing there. It refracts the divine light and, and luminosity, the particular style of that. The way it sings of the, the beauty and the depths and the infinite uh, Create creations and discoveries of soul and divine. It wants that and needs that, perhaps, to be seen. That that's a kind of, I say, healthy soul desire and healthy need. But, at the same time, being seen, I think in our culture, because of culture of individuality and, uh, well, well, actually all kinds of reasons, just in, in many ways, the kind of brutality of our culture, but... Um, with regard to some aspects of soul and sensitivity. Lots of reasons, though. Um, being seen can be very loaded for us, or for some people, for many people. Um, it carries with it, it brings with it, a lot of pain and confusion that's often unresolved. Uh, and, and what's often unresolved as well is this mix. So we get quite, as I said, confused. Sometimes the being seen is more an ego thing. I'll, I'll go into this, uh, hopefully, in this in this talk. Um, and we want to be, uh, you know, um, kind of it's kind of we want our ego to be boosted, or we want to hide, or we're ashamed, we're riddled with shame, or we have this core feeling of being bad, and so it's uh, we want to hide that at the same time that we recognize that we know somewhere our soul's beauty and that that is the beauty of the divine, they're not separate. And our particular soul's beauty, the particular way that that divine beauty comes through us, that divine mystery comes through us, expresses itself in and through us. Um, some of us and some part of us knows that too. And so we, we get, uh, it's quite common to be really quite um, confused and confused by the messages we get in the culture, certainly, but also confused um, just in our own <coughs> psychology and heart and soul uh, because of our history with all that. <coughs> and in all, all of this, again, if we just linger on the sort of... Um, the relational skills piece, if you like, of soul-making, um, uh, we don't sometimes realize just how sensitive we are and uh, how sensitive is the other in relationship, how vulnerable is, uh, in, in, in some ways, um, how vulnerable is the soul and how vulnerable is the soul of the other, in some ways, um, or at some level, let's say. Um, and so again, here, there's a lot of self-honesty, there's a lot of sensitivity and, and awareness um, that, is, that is asked for. And um, fourthly, we could, we could, we could mention, uh, which we've talked about before, the, um, 
the ask of handling erotic charge and sometimes handling sexual charge, sexually erotic charge. You know, is that okay with me? Is that okay with um, the mind? Or does it meet some kind of censorship or some kind of inhibition or block? Can I handle it appropriately and keep the boundary? How to do that? What helps with that? Um, do I even notice what's going on with that? Um, uh, and then we've talked a lot about, about what helps there. Um, may or may not go into it again on this set of talks. Um, similarly with, with, with desire, we talked a lot about how, how to handle the current of desire in a way that's actually helpful. Um, and similarly, how to, if you like, handle or relate to images when they arise. Because we said so many times, if I, if I reify and literalize and concretize this image, oftentimes, most often, um, it's going to cause some problem. So can I relate to the image and, and allow it to become fully imaginal and in that allow the, the imaginal middle way, the theatre element, to open up um, if it needs to. <coughs> um, so handling all that eros, desire, the imaginal skillfully, handling, as I said, our own energies and um, emotional, em, emotions and psychological patterns. So all this we could say is, um, you know, part part of the, all these things, factors, are part of the prerequisites, if we use that word, the foundations for <coughs> um, fertile and sustainable soul-making um, in relationship with others. And as I said, for many people, that's where it actually tends to happen. Um, so this deliberate soul-making diet, where there's deliberately the investigation, the opening, the exploration, the focus on the inclusion of the um, the other as er beloved erotic ima image and opening that up with mindfulness, sensitivity, care, uh, creativity and discovery. Um, we're not teaching that yet. <laughs> that probably is something I, would, I would, wouldn't hesitate to add the word advanced to. Um, but there's elements of some of the same skills that will be necessary for, for that, kind of in a, in a maybe less urgent um, need, um, just because, as I said, where most people will most readily uh, have the soul-making be ignited is in relationship with other soul-makers. So, again, please, I don't want this to sound discouraging, I don't mean to overwhelm you, um, all of this is possible. So you make a boom, 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 that's a huge list and blah, 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 and there's so, all this stuff, but it really is possible um, and, and interesting to develop and really, really useful stuff to develop, but it's definitely possible. It's definitely possible that we grow in these capacities, we gain these skills, we develop these arts. Absolutely possible. I'm not talking about anything that is, um, that is not possible at, at all. What would be the point of talking about it if it wasn't possible? Um, a little bit related is, um, well, in fact, very much related is, um, and I don't know whether you've noticed this uh, with these practices and with talking with others about these practices or in some of the um, dyad work we've done on, on retreats and stuff, <clears throat> is something about, I don't know if you've noticed, how vulnerable it can be, and sacred as well, uh, and there's a relationship there. 
It's a vulnerable because it's sacred. Um, how vulnerable it can be to share images with another person. Um, so this, to me, is really interesting. You know, um, sometimes, um, uh, sometimes, uh, a person might share um, a trauma history or some kind of uh, psychological difficulty with others or in a group interview or uh, with, with another practitioner or something. And that seems often, sometimes seems often to feel less vulnerable and intimate for many people, maybe most people, than sharing imaginal images that are really potent for oneself. Even though one is likely to um, identify less with an imaginal image than, a, if we say, a purely human or flatly human history or condition or fact. Uh, so even when one's identifying less with the imaginal, when, when that imaginal image is potent, it's actually somehow um, uh, more vulnerable to share it than to share um, you know, a really difficult psychological thing we have or some uh, even abuse history or trauma history. It's quite interesting. So the imaginal has intrinsically, as we've said, a quality of autonomy and otherness from self, this imaginal figure, for instance. And yet it is um, bearing that to the world and standing connected to it, but apart from it. So bearing, bearing it, but feeling, this is, I'm connected to this. I'm standing with it in my sharing. Um, and bearing it, opening it, sharing it with the world. Standing connected to it, but apart from it. That seems... Um, vulnerable, despite this otherness and autonomy of the image uh, that's intrinsic to the imaginal. Um, I've touched on this before, but again, to me it suggests, and, and from a slightly different perspective, that what is most essential and important to the soul is not the... Um, if you like, the, 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 the flatly or simply human identity. There has to be a better way of putting that. Um, traditional developmental psychology, or it's common for developmental psychology, is um, to put this, if you like, flatly or purely human identity and not soul and soul-making at the core of its theories. It's always talking about this kind of human level self, flatly human level self, um, and the hurt there, and, and etc. That's the core of the theories and the driver of its processes. I may return to this later on. <clears throat> but you know, it's interesting, I've noticed this a lot uh, with people revealing the angel, so to speak. Revealing the angel is harder, closer, more intimate, truer and, and more authentic, even in its patent fictionality, than revealing the uh, flatly conceived human self, the help, self of normal human discourse, of uh, conventional psychological discourse. Revealing the angel seems harder, closer, more intimate, somehow more authentic and truer. than revealing the flatly conceived human self. And this leads me to a final point. 
uh, about something I've mentioned before, a word called temenos, which is another Greek word that means kind of um, sort of sanctuary or, or the enclosure around an orchard um, is also, I think, a temenos. Um, uh, sacred space, uh, protective space, something like that, temenos. Um, so I just want to say a couple of things about this. I'm, I'm mentioning it now because of the relational piece and the care that's needed then as, uh, you know, as, as an element, the care that's needed there in, in relation as an element uh, of the care for our soul-making and an element of, of soul-making practice um, because a lot of soul-making happens and also because of what I've just said about how uh, vulnerable it can feel to share images with another human being um, because of the sacredness involved there. Um, so, you know, in, in other words, it, it's not helpful to just spout out an image without kind of taking care of the space that I'm in, the relational field that I'm in, the timing. Um, where's the other person at? Are they paying attention? Are they being respectful? Are they open? Are they sensitive? How, how, am, am I paying attention? Am I attuned? Am I in touch with my body? Um, am I just rushing it? Am I... Um, Am I present? Am I showing up? Am I in relationship? Uh, is it the right location? Is it private enough? We're all kinds of things. Um, really, really um, caring again for the self, for the soul, and for this work, and for the image, if you like. Again, if an imaginal figure is a person, if we're talking about imaginal figure, and that includes this tree that is in the park where I go for a walk. Uh, and and my sense of that tree, my sensing that tree with soul, everyone can see the tree, everyone can feel the hardness of that bark, but a lot of people will not be sensing it with soul, or even sometimes I won't be sensing it with soul. Whatever whatever we're talking about here, we're talking about a person and something worthy of respect. <clears throat> so, um, so a temenos, you could say tabernacle is, is another word, or sanctum, uh, it's needed to support the sharing of images in ways that are soul-making. So we might share an image, but again, if we want that that sharing to be soul-making and possibly even fertilize something for the other person and for ourselves in the sharing. Um, but temenos, tab- tabernacle, or sanctum, some kind of care for the, the space, the field, uh, wherein that sharing is happening. Uh is needed uh, to care for the soul, to support the soul-making there, um, and the persons involved, and to, to respect all that, respect the soul, respect the, the imaginal perceptions, what's sensed there, and the persons. Um, and these words are uh, words that are associated with um, religious ritual, temples, and uh, sacredness in, in the past, the temenos, the tabernacle, the sanctum, Obviously, we get our word sanctification from that word sanctum. Just as one would treat a divinity. Just as one would treat a divinity. Um, And again, this doesn't need to be too heavy. I'll come back to that. Too rigid. But there's something of a kind of, again, reverence for the relational field, for the sharing, for the space that's really important here. Just as one would treat a divinity, a God. Just as one would be uh, and create... uh, 
be in the presence of a God and one would create for the presence or in the presence of a God. Now someone might say, oh, but that sounds like some kind of religious dogma and realism, like you're saying this is you're saying this is divine, you're saying you need this thing. Um, which, okay, if someone were to say something like that, um, we could explain it more like this. We could say that in order that you have the sense, the perception, uh, the felt sense of divinity arise in a way that is soul-making for you and or for another. Uh, and the sense of divinity, remember, is is uh, is an aspect, an element, a dimension of the imaginal constellation of the sensing the soul that we talked about uh, in the way that we're using those terms. Um, in order that you have that sense, that actual experience of the divine, uh, at least the dimensionality, and the, you know, moving into the sense of divinity of the. Uh, erotic imaginal other of what is sense with soul you need to treat an image in a particularly caring and respectful way that is with some kind of temenos or sanctum as I've just said that's not a religious dogma or like you need to do this special right now or anything it's just a psychological insight uh, you know you need to care for this stuff you need to care for these experiences you need to care for these um, senses that you have of things, and you need to care for the, yourself and other in relationship around them. <clears throat> it's just a psychological insight. It's just an insight also into the dependent arising of perception. In other words, if I don't care, this if I don't care for this possibility of a certain perception, in this case a perception of divinity, that perception of the divinity um, either won't arise, or it won't arise in the other, or it won't get communicated, or it might be there to start, and then it will just it will be dissolved because it doesn't have um, uh, the vessel. If we use the alchemical term, it doesn't have the temenos, the the tabernacle. So a temenos can be supported by um, by actually ritualizing the time and space. So that's one way of supporting it, or or creating um, a ritualized space together. Um, I mean, that may involve, I don't know, candles and incense, you know, may not, um, uh, uh, but it might, and, and such things might serve the intention. They might serve, you know, absolutely. Um, excuse me, an interview actually is also, you know, between a teacher and a student is also a kind of ritualized space. It has a form, and you sit a certain way, and... Um, uh, there's a time frame and all that and there's a very specific intention and there's a kind of um, uh, uh, focus there, you know. Um, at the same time though, a formal, you know, it's not just a matter of form or ritual. A formal or ritual space does not guarantee a temenos. So the presence of the temenos is, is actually a subjective thing anyway, right? It's not something that you can objectivize just because I burn some incense and light a candle and burn some sage or whatever it is. I'm not, I'm not necessarily creating a temenos. It's a subjective thing. It's an experience, or if you like, an element of experience that one or more people have. Um, and it depends also on the qualities of attention, sensitivity, openness, um, 
emotional attunement, conceptual attunement, um, emotional energy body awareness. All, all these factors are actually really uh, necessary elements in creation, creating a temenos, in establishing a temenos. Um, without any one of those, it will probably fall, fall apart. And that's why uh, I said an interview is partly because a lot of those qualities are gathered together there in the interview format. Um, so it's the, it's it's not so much the ritual themselves. It's just that, as I said, these factors are themselves these kind of, if you like, uh, factors of soul, factors of consciousness, factors of intention, are themselves more likely to be gathered together and supported through establishing some kind of ritual uh, or special vessel or space. In other words, the burning of the candle, the incense, does help sometimes to gather those um, qualities of consciousness and qualities of intention. But it's really those that, that make the space. Yeah. Um, one last thing about Temenos uh, for now. Um, I don't think... A little bit related to what we just said. I don't think there are definite rules in establishing a temenos, um, and as I said, nor nor is it um, always uh, that a temenos is is only created or always created by or in a formal space or time. Um, it's rather the soul making that is possible in relationship through sharing images and perceptions, uh, etc. is fragile. It's easily fractured, it's easily smothered, it's easily um, covered over, uh, it's easily withdrawn, it's easily deprived of its ground, or um, if we borrow alchemical uh, metaphor, it's incubating vessel. It's e- it's, you know, that's another word for temenos, an incubating vessel. Um, so, for example, you know, a pressure, some kind of pressure um, emanating from one person to another, from one party to the other, some kind of demand, some kind of um, uh, a need that is not openly expressed. So I'm bringing this need and this demand to this interaction where an, an image is being shared, either I'm sharing with you or you're sharing with me or whatever, or the group, and... Um, um, not either it's not okay or it's not really clear that that's what's going on or um, it, it, it's kind of it's it's got other more you know less obvious or slightly murky complexities attached to it this need or this demand that I'm bringing I'm not quite aware of it that's enough so, something like that um, that kind of pressure uh, or influx is enough to puncture or collapse any possibility of temenos um, there, um, and and then the soul making in that moment, and what the other person can take in, and what can ignite in them, and what happens to one's own um, soul making. So again, with the temenos, part of that is is in the realm of relational skills. So again, the necessity of relational skills, sensitivities and attunements in order for soul-making to be possible in relationship um, with with another. Uh, so it's clear it's part, actually, of what's involved in creating a temenos and soul-making. Not Soul-making is helped by a temenos. Sometimes it's, we're deliberate in the creation of that. Sometimes it's very easy. It's just a... Uh, 
kind of very easily established thing, and other times it's like we have to we have to take a little care and find our way that we create the terminals here. Um, but again, all of this, actually, everything I've said tonight, um, I really, it, I really uh, want to be encouraging and not discouraging. Um, and at the same time, point out oh, there's this and there's this and there's, this is the way to really care for this. If you love, if you feel drawn, if you have the desire to explore these things, and um, it's good to uh, take it, all this into consideration and build things. And sometimes that's slow and gradual, and sometimes it's m- much easier. But it's all doable. It's all developable. Everything that I've talked about, and um, it's all accessible. Um, uh, and and to to walk this path and to develop to develop these um, facets and these building blocks, if you like, and these foundations, um, is such a gift. You know, these are gifts to oneself. Um, all of this: the emotional awareness, the energy body awareness, the relational skill, the taking care of spaces, the awareness of all that, and the capacity to to tend and care for all that. All, all of these things that I've mentioned and others I've mentioned this evening, um, such a gift to oneself for one's practice, for these particular practice, for one's wider practice, and for one's existence, for one's life. Um, and also, you know, and I, I think you can probably really hear, it's also really a gift to others, and and actually a gift to the world to develop this. Really doable, really developable, really possible. You know, there for us, if we want it. The fruits, the bounties, the beauty of all this. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.